episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Okay, we're going to get started now. Appreciate everybody's attention. So welcome to the AUA Medical Student Forum. So this is really sponsored by the American Urological Association Medical Student Education Committee. Uh, we have a lot of efforts we're engaged in. We'll tell you a little bit about that, but first I want to introduce everybody. So my name is Seth Cohen, moderator. I've been chair of the Medical Student Education Committee for four years. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Clifton's taking that role over. So Dr. Clifton is one of our panelists. She's uh, the director of women's health at the Brady Urologic Institute, Johns Hopkins. To her left, we've got Dr. Jennifer Yates, who's associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. To my immediate right, we have Dr. Kathleen Kieran. Dr. Kieran is Director of Pediatric Urology Fellowship and Professor of Urology at Seattle Children's Hospital. And to her right, we have Dr. Adam Wiener, who is a Urologic Oncology Fellow at the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm, I'm at City of Hope in Southern California. I think I neglected to mention that. So we'll jump into it. Uh, first, we want to really advocate for you all to become members of the American Urologic Association. If you're not already, it's, it's free, so can't beat that. There's a lot of value in that membership. There is the American Urologic Association Medical Student Curriculum. If you haven't seen that, would really encourage you to look at that. There's a website and an app. It's very high yield for medical students as far as urology-based knowledge that's appropriate for medical student level. Uh, we've always endeavored to make it better every year. That's what these hardworking people do. Um, and it's a, it's a very good product. <laughs> There's actually also a medical student playlist on YouTube. So one of the other advantages of being a member of the AUA and also knowing how to use YouTube is, is having access to this resource as well. Um, I also want to put a plug in for the AUA News actually has a medical student uh, article that can be authored by a medical student on a very regular basis. We have a couple of medical students in the audience, Yash and Maria, that would be happy to talk to you about that effort if you're interested in writing a news piece for the AUA News, which is a, the written or the uh, mailed publication of the AUA. So we're gonna jump right into this. This goal is to be as educational for you as possible. So it's really a question format. We're gonna pose these questions to our esteemed panelists. We're gonna get their answers. Once we go through the planned questions, we're gonna open it up to all of you to ask your burning questions as well. It's a very unique opportunity to have people in these levels of, of, of academia and training available to just answer whatever questions you guys want. So look forward to that participation. Let's start. So how can I get the most out of my fourth year clinical rotation? Okay, Dr. Wiener, what's your input? So one thing I love to tell medical students who are starting a new rotation, I'm, I'm sure this is not new information for any of you all, but the more that you can put a little bit of time into reading ahead of time with each case, each patient encounter, if you're going to a clinic where, patient, where someone's focusing on BPH or sexual health, then why not take a few minutes to go to the AUA core curriculum or the medical student education curriculum? Uh, uh, material that we've posted on the internet and and read about that before you get into the clinic before you get into the operating room you should read about the steps of that cancer or the staging of that cancer and, and I, I feel like that that's the way that you're not going to waste your time on that sub eye and if you're doing that in your home institution by the time you get to those away rotations you're going to feel a lot more prepared very good Do okay dr kieran yeah um i would agree that our online materials are actually a great starting point um i wanted to comment on just <coughs> excuse me, 
Um, one of the things that we really look for, which is teamwork and the ability to engage with other people, not just those that are directly assessing you. So how you interact with nurses, medical assistants, people in the operating room, other people on the team is incredibly important. Um, and I think the other thing that's incredibly important is ownership of your patients to the degree possible. So you mentioned kind of knowing about your patients in the operating room, also knowing about them during the course of their hospital stay, which means vital signs, events overnight, kind of being able to quickly and succinctly tell the story so that you can uh, tell your team members you know what's going on with this patient. Very good. Dr. Clifton. Okay. So I think this is a great opportunity to learn as much as you can before you become a resident yourself. And what do I mean by that? You're going to build these relationships with people when you're doing your fourth year clerkships. You need to say, hey, can you help me understand what I could be doing better? And ask for specific things. One of the things that we as faculty sometimes have a hard time doing is actually giving meaningful feedback all the time because we're doing it all the time. So if in your mind you say, this week I really want to improve my HPI skills or I really want to improve my diagnostic skills or I really want to focus on interpreting images. And if you come up to me as a mentor and say, my goal is I want to look at all of these x-rays or these CT scans or these ultrasounds, I'm going to present the patient and I'm going to show you the imaging. I want to just go through it a couple of times when we're in clinic together. If you focus on maximizing what you want, we're so much better at educating. And that includes the residents too. So if you're working with the residents, you tell them that not only are you going to learn a lot, they're going to say, this person gets it. They want to get better. They want to be engaged. And you are going to go in hitting the ground running when you start as an intern because you've done a lot of that self-reflection. So I know that getting the most means learning about things, but it's also growth. And I'm a big proponent of developing your professional identity earlier and doing those things. So do a lot of introspection. Think about what you want to get out of it. And then really that engages people to help you do that. And you just have to be receptive to the feedback. You have to take it and you have to use it to get better and throw away the nonsense. And that is such an important skill. And if you start doing Doing it as soon as you can, you're going to maximize. Great. And Dr. Yates? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, as the closer here, following um, in the footsteps of my colleagues, I think um, two important points that have been made today uh, so far is the critical um, asset that the residents can serve for you. They are your team, team members, your colleagues, your partners, and they also can be amazing mentors. So approaching them ahead of time, um, as Dr. Clifton mentioned, is a huge uh, deal because then they know you're interested. They can give you great tips about where to study, what to read about, which attendings, you know, preferences for them of should you scrub, should you not scrub, and just kind of give you day-to-day feedback of how you can be a real asset to that team. And we all listen to our residents. So when it comes time for uh, 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 rankings or comes time for interviews, my first um, go-to isn't my partners or anyone else. It's the residents. They really know the medical students, and they can say, hey, this medical student came prepared. They offered to help. They really were a member of the team, and that is so critical to us. So we really we do value that a lot. Um, I think in urology in general, it's kind of something, the teamwork piece and colleagues is a huge part of urology, um, but especially in residency. It's a tough time anyway a slice. So knowing that they're going to bring somebody into the uh, uh, residency program or the house of uh, urology who is very much a team player and an awesome person is critical. Great. Let's move on. So research. Research. There's always a big question mark around this. We actually have a really nice webinar that you can access on YouTube about that. We're going to jump right into this question. How do programs evaluate research productivity? 
does does it really matter if research is in a different specialty? Let's let's go right back to Dr. Yates on this, actually. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I think um, knowing your audience is uh, key, and we all represent different types of programs, and every residency has their own flavor, so to speak. Um, so I'm a, a relatively smaller, newer program, and while we certainly look at research, we're a little bit more focused on, um, say, clinical research rather than... Um, a, a more aggressive, um, impressive portfolio of research. Um, other programs, and I'll let my colleagues speak to that, really value perhaps basic research, um, basic science research, if um, they have a, a track in their program for that. So I think um, a lot of medical students kind of get stuck in the trap of thinking, I just don't have any opportunities. I don't know where I can get research, um, especially if your timeline is shortened, which it is for us in urology. If you identify your love for urology and then you see the match is um, pretty soon, relatively speaking, look at other opportunities um, that you may not have really thought about for scholarly activity. It does not have to be an IRB approved basic science or clinical research project. There's a lot of educational scholarly activities. Think about other departments that you may have worked with in the past and you can kind of jump off of that scholarly activity. Um, there's a, thinking outside the box rather than just thinking the classic research track um, when you're looking to, to kind of augment your research uh, portfolio. And to be honest, um, showing interest in research, even if it's outside of the specialty of urology, really means a lot to us because it shows that dedication much more meaningful than doing a, a burst of research um, that and it's your first ven uh, venture into research just to show that you can do research for urology uh, applications. Great, thanks, Dr. Kieran. Yeah, um, so I come from the University of Washington, which is a very research-heavy institution, so a little bit of a different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, however, when we're looking at medical student research, and I think this goes for all of my colleagues as well, we are looking for two things. One is a genuine interest and participation in the research. So if you have 20 publications and you were in a PhD for 13 years, then that's going to be different than showing a high level of dedication where you're first author and you did everything over a couple of years. Um, not 20 publications. You don't need that. I just want to make that message clear. But the amount of exposure, the amount of opportunity that you've had, and the amount of opportunity that has been given to you and what you've done with it should be reflected in your research. Um, the other thing I really want to emphasize this is that it, it's okay if your research is in something else because we really want to see people who follow their passion. I don't want you to do research in prostate cancer if you're not interested in prostate cancer because that just, that won't make you happy. Um, we want to see something where people can come in and say, I did this project, um, this is what we thought you know, about it, this is why we thought it might be important, this is how we did the study, this is what we found, and these are future uh, ramifications of our study, recommendations, etc. So again, having ownership of the project to the degree possible is important, but we want to see involvement, we want to see genuine interest, um, we don't want to see, you know, things where people are just kind of getting involved to put it on your CV. Um, so follow your passion and have that reflected on your work. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Clifton. So I'm going to make a plug. We did a medical student webinar. It has a lot of great information about all of these ideas. And research is a very important topic. So if you have an hour, I'd really recommend going on YouTube and listening to that. We had experts and people uh, asking all kinds of interesting questions. But, you know, I want to just say to this room, I had zero publications and I matched into urology. 
So I said that out loud and it came from me. Now things are a little different now because you're expected to do everything all of the time, but I just want to say you have chances to explain things. If you're from a program where you don't have a research mentor, that's okay. There are resources. We've got wonderful engagement across the country. We can do so much virtually. You can do surveys, but also a case series, a case study, something to go into the literature knowing that you're young in this journey most of the time. And so I, I really don't want you to get overwhelmed, but think about augmenting your application in different ways if you don't have a lot of scholarship. Now, I'm at Hopkins, so research is very important to us, but we do have residents that have less research, but they do advocacy, or they do education, or they are just, you know, clinical all-stars. There are all of these different things that you can bring to the table, so know your strengths and market them. Think about, if I've got a short timeline, how am I going to get this project done quickly? A lot of times, it's a case series. We've got Journal of Urology Open Plus, which is a new online journal. We try to make it so that your publication gets published rather than saying no to your publication. PubMed Index is great, but I think what everyone's saying is just having that interest, showing that you can do the work, that you can start something and end it, and please don't put 500 you know, research experiences and not have one publication. That actually is a very negative for me when I look at that. It says I'm seeing a lot of starting, I'm not seeing a lot of finishing. So be mindful of that when you put it on your application. Great. Okay. And Dr. Wiener. Yeah, I'm not going to say too much because I agree with everything that's already been said. And we have a wonderful webinar that's been published online since um, just this winter that I encourage all of you to go to. I I do want to just echo what uh, Dr. Clifton had to say about being a closer. So what can we learn about a medical student that has good publication track records? One of those is that that's somebody who can be a closer for projects or get things done, get them across the finish line. You don't have to do that. Uh, you don't have to demonstrate that just through research, but that is one thing that when we see people who are finishing projects where have a first author project or uh, followed something over the long term and they still finish it, and they, they they, we can consider that person a closer, someone who's going to get things done. And that's certainly something that we hope you can bring to a residency program too. Um, but again, it doesn't have to be through research. It's just one thing that we think about. Great. And welcome, Dr. Gabriela Gonzalez. Uh, so Dr. Gonzalez uh -huh. is a resident at UC Davis, and so she's going to give us the resident perspective as well. Anything to add to the discussion about research as a medical student? I mean, I think you hit all the important points. Uh, I think it, and most important thing is also finding a mentor who's going to be invested in saying, you know, my main goal is to get you a publication. I think, you know, I had a great experience with that or having that conversation up front saying, my goal is to get a publication, and that way you can work together to make that happen. Excellent. Very good. We're going to keep moving here. So always a hot topic of discussion. Letters of recommendation. How are letters put together? Can I ask someone who's not a urologist? How do I ensure the strong letter? We're going to go right back to you, Dr. Gonzalez, for this question about letters of recommendation. Uh, how I approached this, I uh, got letters from uh, faculty who I did research with and then also um, from uh, sub-eyes as well. So I think that's where um, you have to make sure your performance is it's the best it can be so that you can get the strongest letter possible. Um, I didn't ask anyone outside of urology to write me a letter. Um, I figured it's a small field, so that's important. And how do you ensure you get a strong letter? Work really hard, you know, be a closer, finish that project, be on time or earlier if possible. And you can also help your um, letter writer, uh, letter writer um, a CV or some important notes that uh, you think they should highlight. Uh, I think that's really nice. 
or setting up a meeting where you can go over topics that you want them to highlight or describe certain life hardships you had or things that you think would be important for programs to know about you. Excellent. Very good. Dr. Kieran, what do you think about letters recommendation? Um, so I will, since Dr. Clifton mentioned that she didn't have any publications, I will also <laughs> say I did not have any publications and I matched in urology. Um, and I also had two out of my three letters written by people outside of urology. Um, so I, I think absolutely you can have people outside of urology write a letter of recommendation. The key is to have someone who knows you well who will write a strong letter for you. And so asking someone in urology who doesn't know you well, who's going to write a very standard form letter that doesn't reflect you, would be relatively detrimental, I think, compared to having someone who's stronger. Um, how can you get a strong letter of recommendation? I think you hit on all of this. It's just make sure that, first of all, you do a good job. Whatever that means, we already talked about finding out what that means, following through. Um, and then ask the people, when you ask them to write a letter, can you write me a strong letter of recommendation? That way, if they feel like they don't know you well or they don't have time or for whatever reason it's not going to be the best letter, they can get out of it um, gracefully. Because for, there's a lot of reasons people can't write a letter. Some of them don't have to do with you. But what you don't want is ask someone to write a letter and have someone who's not a closer not send your letter in. Um, so I, I encourage you to just think about what would put you in the best possible light. Um, someone that knows you well, again, someone who's genuinely going to emphasize your strengths. Um, and um, yeah, whoever that happens to be. Dr. Clifton, anything to add? Oh, I do. I always have something to add. So there are different templates for letters of recommendation. There's kind of the free narrative letter of recommendation, and then there's something called a standardized letter of recommendation. You all should be aware that those exist. Um, there are some programs that use them. There are others that do not. It is hard sometimes to gauge. There are programs that have more sub-I's or medical students and less sub-I's. So that, I don't really love the standardized letter of recommendation because if you don't have many students going through your program, are you going to put people one, two, and three? And I don't think that that's the right way to do it. So I don't use a standardized letter of recommendation. I know this SAU will come after me with pitchforks potentially, but but it, it, it is, you have to kind of gauge that. My goal as a letter writer, number one, please ask us, Will you write me a very strong letter of recommendation? If someone hems and haws, you say, hey, I know you're busy. Thanks for you know the opportunity to work with you and find someone else. Don't take it personally. Don't like go up to the chair who's like, I've never met you before, you know, but I'll write you a letter of recommendation. Um, the way that my team does it is we have the PD, the chair, and the APD sign the letter. So we all have input from the residents. So it's a team letter. The other thing that I do is if I'm writing a letter, I will send them a form of questions. It's about 10 questions so that I can have you talk about you and what you want me to put into that letter that's outside of your application. It is so important now to utilize every separate part of your application to optimize your application. We don't have step one anymore, and I'm sure that's going to be coming up in terms of that conversation, but you need to do the things that that are going to optimize us understanding who you are, why you're passionate about urology. So I have my standard list that I send out 
out and I make everyone fill it out and I learn so many nice things and I make them think larger and then I'm able to really make a strong letter of recommendation for them and I think that really sets it apart and when people read my letter they know that I've done that so they're going to read my letter they're not just going to look for the high the highlighted words or when it's underlined or the bold they're going to read through that entire letter um, so if you can make your own list if you're help your letter writers right again like I said help us teach you help us write a good letter of recommendation for you so have a complete CV if you have a personal statement send that along make your list of questions that you really want the writer to highlight and then give different ones to different writers right you don't want to repeat the same information in another letter of recommendation and it's all about kind of strategizing how you do that so don't put all your answers in one Word doc and not have something else for someone else because you want them to highlight. Research mentors, yeah. focus on the research. Clinical mentors, focus on the clinical. Um, so just think about that when you're asking your letter writers to help. Excellent input. I'm going to open this up for Dr. Weiner, Dr. Yates. Anything to add to this? Sure. I'd like to add that um, there is the question of should you have um, letter writers outside of uh, the specialty of urology? And the answer, as we said, is of course. And one other kind of workaround for that, if you're looking at your list of letter writers and you say, man, I'm kind of reaching that limit of how many letter writers I can have for my application, what I do at my institution, we have, and you probably have something similar, um, the medical students are paired with a mentor, a faculty mentor, and it's not a urologist. It's, well, my be, but, um, you know, family med, fill in the blank, throughout their entire four years of medical school. So I reach out to them every year and I say, hey, what can you say about this student that you would like to be included in their letter? And um, while I do that because we have this established program at our institution, it's not unreasonable for you to ask if you are feel comfortable asking the program director or the chair, whoever's writing a letter, hey, would you mind reaching out to my mentor, X, Y, or Z, get a little input from them, and I'll often put just a couple of, not to lengthen it too much, a couple of select quotes about the medical student's performance or something that really stood out, something poignant from their, at that point, three years working with that medical student. Anything else? You- it, yeah, the, the only thing I would add to that is there, there, there really is no great substitute for spending a lot of time with one mentor and growing with that person, completing projects with that person, research or otherwise, because that's the kind of person that's going to be able to write a letter that speaks to where you were and where you've gone and where you're likely going. And again, that it doesn't necessarily have to be someone that you did a ton of research with, but if you're early on in medical school and you're, you're looking for mentors for research or a quality improvement project or, or, or otherwise, that's a great person to continue to meet with and continue to do projects with and establish a relationship with so that when it comes time for them to write their letter, they have so much more on a, on a longitudinal basis to, to talk about. Great. Okay, we're going to keep moving. Okay, the match, pre-interview. How can I learn more about specific programs? What programs should I apply to? Okay, what about step one, pass-fail? What happens with this? Uh, why, don't we, why don't we go to, to Dr. Clifton on this? Because I know she's got some strong opinions on this. I always one. have strong yeah. opinions. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, specific programs, there's a lot of information out there. You're going to ha- be invited to potentially virtual. Everything's kind of virtual right now, and I think that's where we're going to stay for a little bit. So they're going to have virtual open houses. So you can definitely don't go into it saying, I'm going to be you know invited for an interview because I go to a virtual open house. I don't think that's the reason for those. I think, though, it does tell you a lot 
lot about the program. We're doing a lot more with our websites, knowing that things are so virtual. There, there are virtual tours that we're doing at different institutions. We're doing a lot more because we know this is the future of what we're going to do. So there's a lot you can do. There's a Google Doc that floats around that everyone's probably already seen. So ask your neighbor next to you if you've never heard of that. And that goes over some specific, um, uh, it, you know, identified things about programs. Again, though, it's handled by not necessarily a program director so just like yeah. the internet just kind of be thoughtful about what you accept and you don't um, you can definitely reach out cold call people I think that's a little bit you know challenging as a medical student I also get a lot of emails uh, not that I can't I don't like helping people but sometimes PDs get a lot of emails from outside students and we're a little overwhelmed so I think be very strategic and who you kind of reach out these are great opportunities so the AUA you all are here you want to schmooze you want to meet people, you want to learn about programs, you want to see what other people are publishing on. If you're research heavy, definitely go to some of those abstract sessions. Um, if there's some place that you really want to go, definitely do that. How many programs should I apply to? Well, there's a whole conversation about what that looks like. There's something called preference signaling. Right now you get like five tokens. There's a conversation. Are we going to extend the number of tokens that people are going to do it more like orthopedic surgery does? Um, but that gives you an opportunity to show you're interested. But please don't just throw a token out there and not know anything about that program and trying to like play a game really use it to kind of show your interest but I think how many programs there are a lot everyone's applying to everywhere and it's a lot and it's overwhelming so we're trying to think how can we best match people's interests with the program so I think there's more to come on that Seth all right very good Dr. Gonzalez any input on on this this challenge um, I think for learning about specific programs asking you know talking to residents uh, we'll, we'll tend to tell you, you know, our experiences and, you know, whether some residents are more truthful than others, you know, that's just something you have to be aware of. Uh, but I think for the most part, that's what I did. You know, I asked residents in programs that I was interested about and they gave me really great advice, um, kind of gave me advice with how to do my rank list and what they went through. So I felt that was like uh, the most helpful. Um, and I think how many programs, that's obviously very controversial. <laughs> um, I, I would say apply where you see yourself training. Uh, it'll save you, you know, money and time for a lot of other people that need to review um, applications. And, you know, if there's a program you really want to, you want to go to, you know, consider doing a, a sub-I there, and that'll give you, like, the best, probably, experience of that specific program. Very good. Dr. Weiner, anything to add? Uh, yeah, I... Yeah, something that Dr. Clifton was talking about that when, when medical students reach out to me that I like to caution them about is getting sense of a reputation of a program either from some of those online programs or certain people who, who might do sub-internships there. And you see, you think that you're getting a sneak glimpse into the program, but you do have to acknowledge that those all usually come with some sort of bias. And so just understanding that is really important. So if, if a sub-I had, had not such a great experience themselves, they might be biased towards, you know, claiming that the program had a, has a certain reputation and just have to understand that going into the process. Um, an, an alternative is reaching out to people at that program. I think Dr. Clifton makes it pretty clear that it's tough to do that by just reaching out to the program director because they probably get the most uh, contact. But uh, people like, if someone reached out to me and wanted to hear about UCLA, I probably have a little bit more bandwidth than some of the faculty, and I work a lot with the residents. So it's just, you, 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 
you see who the people are at the AUA who want to hear from medical students or young people and would probably respond if you reached out to them. So just keep that in mind. We're, we're a very inclusive society, so we want people like you to have your questions answered. Um, so just those, those are my tips for uh, kind of getting that insider information. Okay, I'm going to open up for doc, Dr. Yates. Dr. Kieran, anything to add to this at all? Um, I think we kind of sidestep the what's happening with step one. I think all of us it's a hot potato no really wants to pick up. Um, I'll end there. <laughs> kidding. Um, I, I think that this is a great unknown not only for you, which I know is so frustrating. I wish I had better answers for you, but also for us as um, educators and program directors, this is kind of the great um, you know great unknown as we step into this. And I think importantly, some programs, many programs will probably be looking at uh, step two. I think it's safe to say that that's going to, I don't want to say it's going to replace step one, but I think it would be naive and um, just incorrect for me to say that that programs are not going to look at that. And then what we hope, of course, and the intent of of getting rid of uh, the scoring system is to be more um, holistic in our interviewing. So as Dr. Clifton had mentioned, that letter of recommendation and the other aspects, I think that's what you were alluding to earlier when you said that letter of recommendation really use every part of your application. I'm stealing your words, and that is so true in this um, kind of this new world that we're living in, is it, you really have an opportunity to kind of display your strengths and your uniqueness through your letter of recommendation, through your other activities. So, you know, focusing on the good of this and not the unknown and the angst that we all have, um, I think it's going to ultimately be a very, a, a huge benefit to all of us. It's just going to be kind of hard to know where we settle out as far as what other um, factors. We do look at um, the dean's letter. We look at the uh, the grades in uh, some of your clerkships, so OBGYN and general surgery, I think um, probably for all of us uh, are important. Um, anyone else want to weigh in on other factors there? I opened it. We have to do this. Dr. Yeah. Kieran? Yeah. Uh, well, I can just comment on a couple of things. Um, I think... The step one is as a bit of a potato, yeah. but I, I will say that it's really just a change in what we're using um, for our bear stratification. And so the the positive part of this is that it has already been said your application now is very holistic. But this makes the rest of the application so much more important, so much more um, of a need to be intentional and thoughtful about what you put on there. Which leads me to my point about the second bullet. Um, how many programs should I apply to? You can apply to however many you want to. When I applied back in the dark ages, I literally had to type on a typewriter my <laughs> applications. Um, and I paid someone just full disclosure because that would have been terrible. Um, however, it's, it, it's, it was harder with the click of a button. And so I had to really think about who could get my application or not because it was time and money. I think it's a little bit easier now to just hit a button and, and to send off the applications. I will tell you, and please tell me as program directors, when you get a deluge, it is really important to program directors to look at every application holistically, and I think you're hearing that. When we get tons of applications, that's an incredible amount of investment. So if you're not really excited about a program, and be honest with yourself, because I, I think when you're applying to 100 programs, you know, you're not equally excited about all 100. Think of Dr. Clifton. Think of Dr. Yates. You know, they're really trying to do due diligence with this, but at some point that is going to take away from someone else's holistic review of their application just because time is finite. So be honest about where your cutoff point might be. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is that uh, uh, 
I will want to give a plug for cold calling people. Um, expect that they may not be able to get back to you right away, but everything that I've ever gotten in my life that's been serendipitous has been me saying, hey, I'm here, can I do this? Um, and people usually don't send you away. They, it might not be exactly what you asked for. It might be not exactly on the timeline that you asked for, but this goes for research. This goes for information. Um, you know, we may send you to our program coordinator to get more information, but I don't think anyone's going to say, oh, don't bother me. Um, people tend to be very responsive. So I want to encourage you to do that because it can feel very intimidating, but we're, we, we were all you once. So we've, we've kind of been there and done that and we can help you. So please reach out. Um, so email me if you want to. Great. Well, I know there's a lot on this topic. Anything else to add before we move on? Any other comments at all? No? Okay. Okay, application process. Will interviews be virtual? We touched on this a little bit. Are there any changes to policies on preference signaling? Dr. Yates, anything you want to add to this? Is that right. I think um, this year is going to be the same, but there, as Dr. Clifton mentioned, there's debate about whether we should adjust the number of tokens um, to reflect other programs. Other programs are kind of blazing trails for us, and we're watching to see how it pans out for them. Anything you want Dr. to add? Dr. Clifton? Um, I think, again, you all uh, should very closely follow the SAU. I mean, I mean, I know we're at the AUA, but the Society of Academic Urologists is going to really kind of give you that timeline. And I do believe we will 100% be virtual. Um, well, 99% sure that. It'll be announced later, but I think you can easily plan for that. Um, and so they're going to give you a lot of information. So that site is something you need to keep track of because they're going to give you guidance on changes related to preference signaling, how to utilize preference signaling, you know, what you can expect. There's data now. Uh, Simone Thavisilin has actually published, or she's publishing some of this. Um, there's information about that. So it can help you make decisions about preference signaling. Um, but it is still evolving. And so it, it kind of changes day to day and last minute. Like last year, we added a flush day during the interview um, process, which was new. And it was on the feedback from our medical students saying, this is really what we need to do. Um, and so it's very, very proactive and really follow the rules. I cannot, I, I think, overstate how important it is to follow the rules that the SAU lays out. If you, you know, you don't want to be that person and that does the wrong thing and gets a phone call from somebody. And even if it's not intentional, just be very mindful of the rules. And um, they're going to have webinars to help guide you through that process, but please watch it. Um, because when we are stuck in those kind of strange situations, just because I think learners don't always know what's go, you know, all the intricacies, that's, that's harder for you all. Um, so uh, that's what I'm going to say about that, because I think it's still changing, Seth. And Dr. Karen, anything to add? I, I don't really have anything to add. No to that. problem. Thank that's you. that's okay. Yeah. Dr. Gonzalez, Dr. Weiner, anything to add to this? No, that's good. No, no. good. No. All right. Guess what? It's magic time because you have the unique opportunity to step up to the mic and ask any questions you want of our of our panelists. And so this is so. Please step on up. Yeah. Look at that. 
Autumn, already a connection. Okay, so who wants to take on this this question? Anybody want to take it on? I'm happy to, to start speaking on that. So I think what you mentioned is is right on and that we have to think about this in advance, even though as we're preparing or as you are preparing as medical students for the match, it's unfathomable, or maybe it is a little, but you don't want to think about it, that it could happen. And the statistics um, indicate to us that it happens more often than we'd like. Uh, we wish we had more spots and could have a higher match rate. So I think speaking to your mentor in advance and saying worst case scenario this is the worst case scenario what are we going to do if it happens you don't want to be in an emotional situation where now you're saying and what do I do with you know for the next steps so to have kind of a if this then that rational approach to it well in advance even if you're you don't think that's going to necessarily be your um, potentially your fate is a really good idea and some potential opportunities to think about in advance um, prelim as you mentioned prelim surgery year which is great especially if you're going to a program that has a very strong urology program where it gives you an opportunity to almost audition and uh, network there other uh, students I think historically have done um, research years I think that's I, I don't know that we have the time or bandwidth to go into the intricacies of that but it's a little bit challenging it has to really count if you're going to do a research year. The other benefit of doing a prelim year is you can be pulled into a program that is looking for a PGY2, um, potentially. So there's a lot of benefit to that. But I think importantly, the conversation is had as a third-year medical to fourth-year medical student looking at the match and deciding if this happens, am I willing to do another specialty? Should I be preparing for a backup uh, match? What am I going to do if that happens? Great insight. Anything else um, to add? Yeah, I can add. Uh, at UC Davis, there is a, uh, in the general surgery program, there's, I think, about um, three uh, students who went unmatched for urology and so did a prelim year at UC Davis general surgery, and they rotated with us. So they coordinated with our department of work um, and, and our service for at least, I think, two months each. Hmm. So we really got to know them very well, um, and then they got letters from our program director, department chair, and they all matched. The, um, you know, the second time around they, they applied. So I think also looking for um, spots that maybe have a good track record as well of working with their prelims to make sure you're successful and not just, you know, using you for labor that year, but, yeah. you know, supporting you. Is that a formal program that UCSD has or is that or, just that particular year it trended towards that? It, I know it trended some, towards that. Awesome. Uh, there's yeah. just more unmatched applicants, I guess. Yeah. And, but um, they have more prelim spots, I mm -hmm. think, because they do military match as well Got at it. Davis. So I think there maybe someone else knows exactly who does this, but I think there are is or are programs out there that specifically are geared towards um, applicants who didn't match and are trying to do a prelim year and kind of um, prepare for urology. Is it is it Colorado? Colorado. Colorado. So that's some, another mm -hmm. asset to consider. Yeah. yeah. Any, any additional input? Yeah. One thing I just want to say is that, you know, we talk a lot about being strategic with the match and how to match in, in urology. And I think that the implication can be that not matching is very personal and has some reflection on your value as a, either a person or a future urologist. And so I just want to explicitly say that that is not true. It just means that you and a program didn't match. That's, that's it. That's the end of the statement. Um, and some of the people that I know that are the best urologists are people that are, you know, didn't match. They didn't match the first time. Um, there are people who didn't match into their fellowship. There are people that didn't match into their residency. There are people that didn't match at their first choice. Um, and all of those things at the end of the day, you know, it, it's what you do with what you're given that I think is going to determine your course. 
more so than anything else. So I, I just want to say this because I think that and the moment, as you said, it can feel incredibly emotional and it can feel really, you know, people obviously struggle with this. It's, it's terrible to not match. And really thinking about this ahead of time, making a plan helps with that. But just remember, others have been there before and they have gone on to be very successful. So it's a bump in the road, you know, walk around the hole, keep going. So I just want to um, put that out there to people so that don't get discouraged, don't stop. Yeah, we're, we're going to move on in a sec because we have more questions. But I, I will say passion is passion. And I've never seen someone that wanted to do urology, even not matching two times, ultimately get into urology. So if this is truly your destiny, if this is what you're meant to do, keep at it, and, and people find a way. They typically find a way. Thank you very much for the great question. Next question. Hi, grateful to be here. I'm a medical graduate from India. So uh, as an IMG, of course, research is the most important in finding my fellowship degree. But how can an IMG shine as an applicant apart from research? You guys aren't throwing us softballs, which we appreciate. Okay, so who wants to jump onto this question? The program director should probably. I think a lot of times we receive um, uh, outreach from folks that you uh, would have worked with in a clinical setting, and that's so meaningful um, to hear from somebody who's worked with um, someone in a research setting or a clinical setting or fill in the blank to have that kind of personal touch and I think it probably happens to the other program directors here is that they'll will receive an email I have this um, applicant I can vouch for you know all of the the characteristics we want in a resident and that is that that personal kind of touch is can can be meaningful it's a little tough though it is I I understand that and um, I think doing away rotations if at all possible for everybody for everybody who's applying is um, is really helpful. I just want to say some of the most wonderful people I've met are IMGs, but it is such an uphill struggle. Um, and I want to just acknowledge that, especially with not matching. I really want to echo, this has nothing to do with you. This is a, a little bit of a game. The SAU is going to come after me, but it's, it's a little bit of a game, and it's about playing the game. Um, and, that, and that's what we're trying to help is a little bit of strategizing. You all love urology. We all want you to be here, and we're working on that. We're working on it on a larger scale than this you know, I think panel can talk about because we are going to have a shortage of urologists and there are so many amazing people that I would love everyone to come and work with me and I would be so excited and energized. So we see that and we know it's there. So we want you to come. From an IMG standpoint, I think the resources and connections are really invaluable. There are independent groups that kind of like talk about this. Again, I'm going to mention that Google Doc that you kind of have to use a little bit of a lens when you interpret, but they're going to give you some history on where programs have matched international medical graduates. The problem with the rotations, though, is that if you are not a current medical student, you can't do a rotation as a medical student. So then you're doing an observership. An observership is very different than doing a medical student rotation. So you have to kind of plan. If you're planning on coming over, figure out a way to do a clinical rotation. If it's afterwards, meaning you've completed medical school and you have a degree, then you're a little limited. So you have to, and that's why I think that research piece comes on because you're a little bit limited in terms of what you can do. I think it's all about the strategy. It's finding the mentor. It's looking at the correct program. It's finding these, I like to say diamonds in the rough. Urology is full of amazing programs. It's not like some of the other specialties where you don't have a good program. Our programs are awesome. They may not always have the biggest reputation, but they are just clinically amazing. And I've been at that program. I was a program director at a 
very small program that was just amazing. And of course, I'm a little biased. But that being said, you know, looking broadly is so important. I'm at Hopkins. It's awesome. It's the number one. But I mean, honestly, there are so many great programs that you can go to. And so you have to have a very broad view when you're looking at it. So look at the history of the IMG match. Look at the mentors that are going to coordinate for you. And then make sure to have a really broad lens and show directed interest at those specific programs. Don't say I'm going to apply everywhere. Make sure that you're very intentional about joining their virtual grand rounds, doing a research project with a mentor, doing that and laying it out and they see that engagement. And don't, you can only do it at a couple places, but do it intentionally. Great and question. Thank you very I, much. Uh, Dr. Cohen, yes. can I qualif uh, qualify my previous statement? Is sure. when the the mentorship is huge and the outreach huge, I think from an SAU standpoint, I need to be very careful in how I phrase that. We really discourage behind the scenes reaching out from mentor to mentor. We want this to be a very equitable process for all. Um, so I when mm -hmm. I... Um, advocate for you to have a mentor that's going to speak for you, getting the letter of recommendation, having really strong letters of recommendation from folks you've worked with, rather than having, I, I'm qualifying that, we don't want people reaching out behind the scenes, because that kind of undermines the whole match, it undermines everything that we're going for, which is holistic interviewing and an equal opportunity for all. So having that strong mentor that writes really good uh, letter of recommendation for you is huge. Excellent good point. Good luck. Thank you very much. Next question, please. That's right. I love it. So my question is, what are your individual perspectives on an osteopathic applicant? Yeah. So we probably can't get input from everybody because we we're, we want to get some more questions. But just who wants to answer that question? Okay. Sure. Um, I, I think similar to what Dr. Clifton had said about our IMG colleagues, um, osteopathic applicants um, can and are often phenomenal. And I, I say that from personal experience working with a, um, as a co-resident, Dr. Lana Chuck was one of the best urologists I've ever met in my life. And she was, uh, she graduated from osteopathic school. So I know a similar challenges because there's a, perhaps a bias, but I think that um, we've all worked with um, DO colleagues who are phenomenal and welcome welcome your application to uh, urology for sure. And, and I think this holistic review is changing the very stuck in the mud people. We are looking at applications differently. The force of the change of the step, the input for the medical students has really, I think, opened the lens. What used to be a very rigid process is a lot more, I think, flexible. So optimize that application. I think if you get anything out of today, well, urology is the best. But the number two is optimize that application. Make sure that you do everything that you can to explain it away. One of my very best friends who's an amazing urologist, also a DO, and I loved her. We worked at Mayo together. It's just phenomenal, and I think we're seeing that. And I have an IMG who I matched who's one of my favorite people too. So th th there are, there's a lot more opportunity, I think, now than there was, but you still have to be strategic about it. Great. Any other input on this? We'll move on. Good? Good? Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much for the question. Okay, next question. Hello, good morning. My name is Sure, sure. Very good question. Please, Dr. Weiner. Can I, can I just say, going back to a similar theme that we already spoke about, 
Yes, some places won't have as many resources as others. Some places don't have a urology department, but that doesn't mean that you can't establish a great mentor-mentee relationship at your program and drive projects over the course of medical school and then have that person write you an excellent letter that shows your growth and shows your path and shows that you're a closer on these things. These are all things that can relate to being a good urology resident. So um, I, I just want to put that out there before we start talking about, well, how do we get someone like you integrated into urology? Because I think it's still possible to be a great applicant and, and not have those specifically urology resources at your program. I can add Yes, Dr. Dallas, yeah. So uh, at least for the UCs, uh, I forget the exact name of the program, but maybe I know Dr. Santiago Lostra helped start it with Dr. Scotland from UCLA, where um, and it, there's a few students who have participated in that program in the crowd that I recognize. Um, and you know, if you don't have a home program, they pair you at a UC. Uh, different UCs take about uh, maybe one to two students or three. They pair you with the faculty member you observe in their clinic and the operating room and the. Uh, goals to do a research project over the summer and then maybe you know once you're a third year come back as a sub I and uh, and continue your efforts so there are some programs out there that can supplement not having a home urology program so I'll put, I'll put a plug for that great work that um, folks like her have done and then urology unbound as well um, has a lot of resources yeah those are really good points those are two so dr. Santa Galastra is, uh, is a urologist at UC San Diego if you google University of California urology, rotating medical student, you'll probably find the program. And so I certainly advocate for you to look at that. those five UC campuses do have that program. And exactly right, Urology Unbound, also a really great resource to kind of figure out how to get more exposure to urology if you're earning to do that as you're applying. We also have a webinar. The Medical Student Education Committee has a webinar that talks a little bit about some of the opportunities and highlights a lot of those programs. So you can kind of zoom to the end and, and see where those are. Uh, but I would take an opportunity to do any of these type of, a lot of it's publicized on social media. Urology Unbound is just a phenomenal program. There are just so many different opportunities for DOs, IMGs, everything. Just look, join Twitter. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's the way that you can kind of learn a lot about these various opportunities. So utilize social media media. Again, do it in a very professional and respectful way would be my guidance, but make sure then you can kind of get plugged into these opportunities and they're always coming up and they're retweeted by this guy here. A lot of us on this panel are retweeting it because we want to encourage the growth and diversity of our field. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good question. Does anyone want to answer that? So looking at the formulation of urology residencies, is, is there any sort of integration of the research here towards a fellowship? I think the answer to that is no, but yeah. I'm going to let, I don't know, does anyone else want to answer that? So I have a six-year program, so I can talk about it. Um, we are doing a lot of interesting things, and I think if we don't evolve, we're not going to support our learners the way that we need to. So I am a very flexible program uh, director, and there are things that I can't disclose, but one of our residents who's coming up is actually doing a really exciting one-year program. We've had people go overseas and mentor, be mentees to other people. We have a history of doing that. I think the key is you have to understand what programs are going to be willing to do that. We completely protect our, our, our 
uh, research time. So you are not responsible for clinical activities. It's a hard stop. That is, that is going to allow you a little bit more flexibility should you want to do those things. Now, an integrated fellowship, there are also the opportunities there. Now, you have to realize a lot of the fellowship societies, like for SUFU or, uh, you know, like for, sorry, FPMRS, we really, you, you can't. You can't integrate that inward. The SUO, I don't think there's an opportunity yet. I wouldn't be surprised if things start to change a little bit, but you're going to have to look at the fellowship organizations if there's a way to do it. Now, unofficial fellowships, that's absolutely something that you'd have to talk to your institution about, but that may be an opportunity there, and I certainly think that Hopkins would be a place that would be flexible towards that, but not every program is built that way. So if, you're, if your research time is not protected 100%, it's very difficult to do something else on the side. Um, but some people get an MPH, some people are working towards an MBA. They're all different types of things you can do, but it's very, very, very specific to the program you're applying. Anything else or we'll move on to the next question? No. Okay, thank you for the question. Thank you very much. Next question, please. So you're asking about what is the real value of uh, essentially an observer shadowing experience. Does anyone want to comment on that at all? So I would say it's probably not as much as we would like it to be. So I tell people to get a little creative. Maybe do volunteerism, work in a hospital. I don't think it has to be experienced only in urology. I can't tell you how moving it is when I hear stories of people taking care of maybe underserved, underprivileged, going to, to nursing homes, being AIDS, getting their hands, I think, into caring for patients. That story is a big story. And I don't think we talk about that, but what, what all of us are looking for, people with, you know, uh, uh, caregiving ideals and wanting to do the best for patients. And so you're right, walking around and shadowing someone in clinic, unless it's your mentor, then there's a, that's a different conversation, right? It's to what Dr. Wiener was saying. It's, it's that collaboration. That's different. But if you really don't have that, think about ways that you can serve your community, that you can serve others, that you can continue to do and work on the things that you're passionate about. And it doesn't have to be within urology. So there are a lot of opportunities for volunteerism, for even, you know, getting becoming an EMT, doing different things that show that you're invested in the field in clinical medicine. So that may be a way to kind of bridge that, but I, I think that the observership has uh, very significant limitations, unfortunately. Well, any other input or we'll move on? Yeah. Any other input? I, I'll just comment that if you're going to do an observership, do it very intentionally and set that up with whoever you're working with. And because there's a difference between just following someone around all day and, you know, really being intentional about observing what they're doing and what's happening during the course of a day. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Next question, please. Thank you so much for hosting this. I'm Yvonne Rose. I'm from the University of Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Texas. And in talking about the holistic review process, especially this year, 
what is the best way to optimize the personal statement portion of our application, and how can we do that in a concise way? I can make a comment about this. Um, go. I would say that when it comes to creating your profile and your package and what you're bringing, everything should really read like one theme and, 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 and everything is, is complementing each other. I agree with some of the earlier comments about, well, I didn't really have spy, space to talk about the research project in this manner. Can my letter writer please do something like that? But when it comes to your personal statement, it really should be something that complements everything else that's coming in your package. So if you're putting on your CV some of your interests and your, and your hobbies or, or, or how you spent some of your non-clinical time during medical school, then that essay, it, it wouldn't be a great place to suddenly talk about something totally different that probably comes out of the blue and doesn't, and it, it should be something unique to you, but also something that complements the, the rest of your profile, the rest of the package. Um, Great input. Anything else we should add? I would say uh, when I review applications, I actually start with the personal statement. I really enjoy it. And um, the ones that I like the most are the ones that are very personal um, and that I'm like, oh, I'm interested in, like, meeting this person and, like, having a conversation. And, like, they seem like someone that would be cool to work with. Uh, you know, and then I, I learn more about them on the rest of the application. But the personal statement, um, it you know, make it personal. And, and I agree with the theme. Great. I'm just going to say, please don't put anything strange or controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have someone read it. Um, unfortunately, there was a situation where a medical student that I was working with, I didn't read the personal statement. I read it as it came through as an application. It was definitely not what we should have been putting forward for that person. They had a lot of amazing attributes. That's a failure on me not to advocate to review every personal statement for the medical student. And that's my failure. So, But please help us. Help us help you. So if you have a personal statement, I had my mom read mine. My mom reads a lot of my stuff. I know that's crazy. I'm 40. But but I, I do think having another set of eyes is so incredibly important to that. Um, they can give you a lot of input. If you're really an exceptional literary genius, write something cool. People talk about those amazing things. I am not. I am a really kind of methodical person, so mine was pretty vanilla, um, not very exciting, but it got the passion. It, it connected the dots, which I, I, I really think that's an important idea. Yeah, great. Okay, we're going to move on to the next question. Thanks thank very you. much. Appreciate it. Hi, again, thank you guys for being here today. Um, my name is Quinlan Walcott. I'm a third year from the University of Kansas. And I had just had a question about preference signaling. I know that it's not set in stone yet, but since we do have a small number related to other specialties, um, would you guys recommend us preferencing our home program if we have one, and or our sub eyes that we do, um, just due to the limited number? Sure. Are we wasting them if we would use those? Really good question. Who would like to answer some preference signaling questions? Anybody? So so um, it's you don't you don't actually preference signal those programs. So it's automatic that you're signaling them. Your home program is included in that, so you would not signal them. Again, that's part of the rules of that. The other thing is, if you do a sub I, they assume that you're very interested because you've done a sub internship. So you won't have to do that. I think I think there is some strategy. Um, just throwing them out there, thinking, oh yes, I want to throw this out there because I'm going to go to this reach school and sending them to five reach schools. I don't think that's the best approach. Um, but again, I think there's a lot of conversation 
conversation that may ha uh, be happening in the future, especially if we find out the tokens are going to be expanding and whatnot. So the good news is you've already got that buy-in because you're at those programs. And I think one of the SAU webinars does address that in a little more detail, right? Kind of just how the work, how it works and the, the strategy for the match. So keep an eye out for that. Look them up. Yep. 